everyone. I'm Anna Ryan. And I'm Just Mastercola from the Overrun Podcast. We're starting a new podcast called Glam. The Gorgeous Ladies of Advanced Medicine. A podcast run by women for women in EMS. We're talking about everything from sexual harassment, job advancement, and breaking the glass ceiling. Raising families and working in healthcare, education, and professional development. Plus, what foundations won't melt off in a code, and the kind of mascara that's best for batting your eyelashes at the patriarchy. This ain't your brother's EMS podcast. Glam, coming soon to the Overrun Network. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Anna Ryan. And I'm Mike Filippo. And today we're going to talk about upper airway emergencies and management. This is something that we uh, kind of discuss generally early on in medic school. It's something that's kind of addressed in EMT school as well, but it's not really something that is talked about afterward. So when we talk about upper airway emergencies, there's a lot of different uh, illnesses that we'll discuss, but we'll start just kind of with the basics. Mike, talk to us about upper airway emergencies. The upper airway itself is defined by the oropharynx and larynx. And when it comes to upper airway emergencies, you really want to... Be cognizant of the three main sites of obstruction, which are defined as superglottic, glottic, and subglottic. And glottic, of course, is like the vocal fold opening. So anytime uh, you're doing any sort of upper airway management, and anytime there's an upper airway emergency, you always want to have intubation on the mind, uh, just because obviously that's the only definitive way to control the airway uh, in the pre-hospital environment. So in doing my research for the show, I actually found about this other test I didn't know about that I thought was interesting to show, and we'll share a picture in the show notes but the upper lip bite test uh, to determine difficulty in intubation. So essentially the vermilion border where uh, on my very white body where my <laughs> pink lip stops being pink and goes into the fleshy white of my upper lip. That's the vermilion border. Um, you take the patient's lower incisors and like I'm doing now. It's an audio, it's an audio podcast. Listen, I realized that right before I bit my lip. Um Depending on how far the patient can get their lower incisors oh up determines the difficulty of the intubation. So, for instance, uh, if a patient has an abnormal upper lip bite test, the probability of a difficult intubation is upwards of 60% for the average risk patient. Because it probably, it probably corresponds, and I'm doing it myself right now, too. So, I, I guess it would correspond to the ability of jaw thrust, jaw mobility. Yeah, moving the mandible would be my assumption. Um so that's just one little caveat I thought was it's interesting. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it doesn't take yeah. long. I mean, if you have a conscious patient that's willing to follow commands. Yeah, tell them just make their mouth like a pit bull. So essentially, what, what we're doing, you take your bottom teeth and then you bite your top lip. Yeah, that's, that's not hard. Not, yeah, <laughs> and not sensually. Right. <laughs> or no, you bite your lower lip. You bite your lower lip, yeah. yeah. But no, so you. No, you never bite your lower <laughs> lip sensually. Please do not. You know it when you see it, Dan. So, but generally, yeah. So you would take the bottom teeth, you try and bite your top lip, and then you have the patient do that. Now, this is all. This is a score that can also be used in, you know, with the Mal and Patty score. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and also with the Lahane score, if you really feel that kind of froggy hey. for. Hey, Lahane. So, and, and this is obviously it's abnormal if the patient's lower incisors can't extend the upper lip. So it's something that would be good to know if you have someone who is kind of in the pre-intubation phase. Right. And you're going to have to control their airway. You're not really sure how. If you don't, if you're not in a position where you can actually get a good malin patty for whatever reason, you can actually use this as kind of a reference. Point. Hey, bite your upper. Well, malin patty. Yeah. Remember, I mean, I'm not going off on a tangent here, but malin patty is not great for EMS because the vast majority of people that we intubate, you can't get an accurate malin patty. Right. So this is probably for your conscious patient that you're thinking of. You know, if you're in an RSI program. Uh, 
somebody that's going to buy a tube one way or the other and they can do this, this is a real quick one because it's going to give you an idea. Well, I got a problem or, you know, there's some anticipated difficulty. Definitely. And, you know, the best the best difficult airways are the ones you predict. You know, that's yeah. that's that's proven. Well, and this is also going along with you always want to be prepared for that. You, you know, any patient can turn around. You might actually have to intubate them just from the get go, which. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we talked previously about using uh, gestalt and clinical judgment. But, you know, if you have someone who's very sick, you always want to keep intubation in the back of your mind. This also might be really good to establish mental status, too, if they can follow command. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just like totally yeah. like out of the. Well, it's also the there's there. there's facial nerve involvement in that as yeah. well. Like this, just they start using the upper lip test for everything. <laughs> Stroke. Hi, my Stroke. name is Mike. I'm with EMS. Can you bite your lip for me, <laughs> just for shakes? Thanks so much. Not sensually. How many times? <laughs> now, now look at me out of the corner of your eye. Like, no, <laughs> we're not no. getting there. I need you. I'm gonna need you to bat your eyelids a whole bunch. Or can you do that for me? <laughs> look at test the cranial nerves. All right. All right. Moving on. <laughs> So, Mike, what are some so for EMS clinicians, for people out there getting on the trucks tonight, tomorrow who might be listening to this? What are the big upper airway emergencies that we see and what do we need to be aware of? Yeah. Um, so obviously, as EMS, not only are we frontline for any emergency, but typically airway is like one of the ones that we can make a big impact right then and there, especially if there's some sort of upper airway emergency. Um, outside of obstruction, I would say the one we need to be most concerned about uh, in the field that we hear a lot about that's a good reminder is croup, uh, especially at least in the Northeast right now or right in the middle of winter season. Croup, uh, as soon as you hear the cough, you know what it is. Uh, so just to go over a quick re- rundown of what you do for a croup, a croup, racemic epi, racemic epi, racemic epi. But just remember, racemic epi is a short-term temporary fix for croup. The real thing you want to do is give some sort of steroid. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be solumedrol, which a lot of ALS units in the United States carry, but the best preferred route, especially for pediatrics, is oral dexamethasone. Okay. So decadron. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Or if you can give IM decadron. Or... Now, so if you're in a, in a position where you don't actually carry racemic epi, which is it's actually a, a chemical composition, you can also do just saline bullets to actually to treat the saline, or you can use uh, you know your cardiac epinephrine, your 1 in 10, and nebulize that as well. Some purists out there would argue that you can't do that, but... Yeah, but, but, it, but any but port the treatment storm, of croup, you know, yeah, like, the, the treatment of croup is very much it, it kind of turns into like you have to use what you have. I mean, the the home treatment of croup is putting a child in a hot, hot shower. shower. Yeah, so <clears throat> racemic epi is good clinically if you have it. Um, most places don't carry racemic epi uh, as a cost issue because you're going to carry cardiac epinephrine anyway. So you might right. as well just use that epinephrine um, and relatively low utility. Right, thankfully. And yeah. that's a, that's the kid. Remember, that's that's the sick looking kid who's striderous, who looks really, you know, who's not having a good time. And then the kid who's just kind of got that seal barky cough, a saline nev is perfect. And that's that cough. You're walking through Walmart. You hear a cough a few aisles down. You're like, yep. <laughs> I'm staying away from that. Aisle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no chips ahoy today. Sorry, honey. <laughs> All right, so so uh, so croup. I mean, that's a common thing, especially in our area up in the winter time. Um, viral, generally self-limiting. Right. We don't have to freak out. People do freak out. I think the biggest for me, the biggest thing you treat is the parents. Definitely. Right. It's like you know, hey, it's going to be okay. This is fine. They're not going to die. Well, and also, and, and again, we we've talked about doing your assessments. You want to make sure that it is actually croup and not like epiglottitis or something more. That more leads us into our next one. Does it? Thankfully, wow, go on. that was a good segue. Like so that. the other two I wanted to bring up, uh, really, they're one topic all in one, but I'm going to separate one out as you see, um, is abscesses in, in the neck and 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 infections there, and particularly. 
Unfortunately, there's a rise of obviously anti-vaccination uh, in the United States. Our area in the Northeast has particular pockets that are strongly anti-vax. And yes, I, that's working out well. Thank you. <laughs> also a self-limiting problem. Vaccinate wow. your children. Yes, please. Um, even at this point, if you do a delayed vaccine schedule, please just vaccinate. It's fine. Something's better than nothing. Yeah. Um, but so one thing in the airway, obviously, if you don't see a mechanical obstruction, which you can do just by a quick visualization of the upper airway, if there's some sort of stride or abnormality. The other thing you want to be concerned about always is an abscess, something you can't see, but something that's obstructing the airway. Um, airway protection obviously is always the top priority. Um, but, uh, if you're able to, obviously you want to follow with giving antibiotic. Okay. So when you have someone who actually has like epiglottitis, um, and we know that, you know, we, we've talked about the vaccine thing, um, you know, it, it does actually reduce the risk of epiglottitis. So absolutely. But you're actually starting to see kids. a rise now of upper, upper airway abscesses, not only in even children, but adults who some of them have not been vaccinated because their parents never did it and they don't know they're not vaccinated. Right. Um, yeah. I was just going to say that it seems like we're seeing more adult epiglottitis mm-hmm. than we're seeing with the kids. And that's really spooky. And these are patients you really want to get very quick control of the airway. Um, and there's other forms of upper airway abscess that you need to be aware about that we also talked about in a previous episode, like peritonsillar abscesses and so on, particularly in the pediatric airway episode we did earlier on. There's one particular type of airway, quote-unquote, abscess I'd like to bring to attention, though. Uh, it's called Ludwig's angina. It's essentially a submandibular abscess or cellulitis. Majority of the time, not all the time, but a majority of the time, these are patients that had a tooth abscess that they're unaware about, so they may have been having tooth pain for weeks or months or even acutely for days with a fever, and then all of a sudden they develop this shortness of breath and difficulty breathing, maybe even difficulty swallowing. And all it is is a collection of pus that extends from under the tooth into the submandibular space. So this typically presents as a physical exam finding of like very swollen erythematous mandible, especially the space underneath the chin. And even on visual exam, if you ask them to open their mouth, one side of their tongue will be elevated over the other because that's the pus essentially like pushing. And and this is just so we're clear, this is not generally like a, you know, two, three hour acute problem. This is, you know, generally speaking in the field, we don't do, you know, mandibular exams or neck exams. So this is a secondary thing you want to find out, you know, as you're. Like almost as if you're palpating lymph nodes, but you would actually feel more like of a uh, like a solid pus collection. Yeah, yeah. And these airways are very very dangerous. You want to think of these essentially as like angioedema. So airway protection is the key. These are actually preferably done in the operating room. So if you're really suspecting this, this would be something get on the horn with the doc or the ED. Let them know you have a suspected case of uh, submandibular cellulitis or abscess. And actually, these usually go straight up to the OR for intubation by anesthesia. And if you're an ALS provider, these are patients, if you have to intubate, be prepared to crike these patients or to do some sort of field trach. Uh, the ultimate treatment for these are incision and drainage followed up by antibiotics. Um, and then speaking of angioedema, the last thing I wanted to discuss as far as upper airway emergencies that we need, need to be cognizant of, specifically the superglottic type, is angioedema itself. In the United States, we see two variants of angioedema. The most common variant we see in the U.S. is ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. ACE inhibitors, as we all know, but a quick refresher, are a type of antihypertensive medication. They increase the blood levels of a certain protein that in- increases the likelihood of having angioedema or swollen airway. Um, additionally, you can get hereditary forms of angioedema, which is really crappy. Uh, you just don't have a gene product that makes uh, something that breaks down this certain protein, so you get elevated levels and then end up with a swollen face for no reason in the middle of the night. Yep. Um, there are two treatments that I know some ALS units are carrying out there for distinct cases of ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema. 
um, which we can link in the show notes because I can't pronounce their names. Um, <laughs> but they're they're antagonists or inhibitors of this product that's produced in excess that causes the angioedema. And again, with these, you want to be very quick to intubate. Uh, and then lastly, one thing you always need to be cognizant of is tumor. So you have a patient that has a history, even remote of metastatic cancer or some sort of cancer. They're de- developing the slowly difficulty swallowing or maybe the slow onset strider, difficulty breathing, and now you feel like some sort of mass on intubation. These are patients that may not be a good candidate to intubate in the field because there's some sort of solid mass that's obstructing the airway. So and we've talked a little bit about low weight angina, and now we want to get into angioedema. We know, you know, and it, the problem with people taking ACE inhibitors is that they may have been taking, you know, lisinopril for decades, decades, and then suddenly this happens to them. So it is a very acute reaction, um, and typically their meds will be changed, and they'll go on, you know, whatever different antihypertensive they have. But you do want to be prepared to intubate patients with angioedema, but you also want to try not to. Right. And part of the yeah, rate, they're re- they're really dicey. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to get in them. You you have less room to maneuver. Uh, you can't displace tissue as well. Yeah. Um, this is not somebody that I would want to paralyze. Um, I, I would agree with that. I, yeah. I don't think that this is really an option for your angioedema patients. Uh, keep them sitting up. Keep them leaning forward. And we're not anything. talking about allergic angioedema. These are right. angioedemas from ACE inhibitors or hereditary right. causes. And again, like the severity of these, the, the few I have seen that did require intervention in the emergency department weren't even intubated in the emergency department. They were urgently sent right upstairs to the operating room right. just in case, obviously, if they needed a trach or something. Well, and, and that's kind of the thing. In, in the field, when you see it, you know, our treatment options are somewhat limited. Our, you know, gut reaction is It's a pucker moment. Him, yeah, our, our gut reaction is to give them an antihistamine, so, you know, diphenhydramine or whatever equivalent you have. Possibly and, some nebulized epi. I, yeah, maybe, maybe but, it's, it, but even then, that doesn't really, that doesn't change... The, the size it doesn't. You might. Much. You're basically just buying time. Right. You might and shrink some tissues. And I hear, I hear the old heads out there shouting about nasal intubation. Uh, yeah. Which well, I don't think it would be a contraindication in these patients. No, not at all. Because you, this is somewhere where you're going to have to. Their airway is effectively uncontrolled, right? And you know, we talked about scores earlier. They're going to be like a Mal and Patty Lehane four because their tongue is gigantic. the The term that's used, which makes me smile because it sounds funny, is beefy red tongue. <laughs> <laughs> beefy it's more of a stroganoff yeah <laughs> um but you know their 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 actual tongue is gigantic to the point where they actually can't keep it in their mouth anymore that's part of the yeah, reason that you'll see it'll be sticking out it is not and, this is not for your novice intubator this is not no, for your no. brand new person well, and also like, and the more i don't i wouldn't even want to go near this no, i don't the, want to the touch more this guy. irritation you cause to the airway Obviously, you're going to cause an inflammatory More response, swole. and you just make it worse. More swole. Mm. Swole. <laughs> swole tongue. Oh, man. Swole. swole tongue would be good. That's a good death metal band name. Swole tongue. Swole tongue. Yeah. So, but that's one of the concerns that you have to have. And when you see this, you know, at a BLS level, it's really just, like, there's not a lot of treatments that we really encourage diesel boluses for. But this is going to be one of them. Because, again, this is a this is an airway that you're losing and there's really right, no and you can't, and there's no, there's no chartable progression. Like you're not going to see it slowly develop or rapidly. You don't know. It's almost right. like, when's this going to go really bad? We're not sure. So this is expedited. I hate diesel bolus too, but expeditious transport to the hospital, not wasting time. If you, if you're in a system where you rendezvous with ALS, it might be something to do just to, because there are modalities that we could do. For that crashing angioedema patient that we can't get an airway from up right. top, uh, those are not BLS scope of practice things. 
Um, if you have a physician response unit, and they have a fiber optic scope or they have the ability to actually do something um, that we don't. Yeah. Well, and even might that, be if, an they, option. If, if you're in a if you're in a system that they have the, you know, the capacity to use a bronch. Right. Like this would be the time to do it because or again, some sort once, of video lar- laryngoscopy. Yeah. Because once you actually because this way, once you actually get into the air and the, re- the only reason I say a bronch over a VL is if you can get a bronch past the tongue, then you can pass the tube pretty easily with VL. Right. If you get in. You know, and if you cause enough irritation. Yeah, I don't even know if the, you know, the whole idea of the VL is looking around the corner. So what if the corner is so wide you can't get around it? You know, your hyperangulated blade on some of these tongues are not going to navigate that turn. I actually wonder, thinking about it now, let's say this patient, you're 40 minutes away from the hospital. This patient is super swollen. You can't even get a laryngoscope blade in or barely get a laryngoscope blade in, maybe like a blind bougie. I mean, maybe. Well, and that's up. that's kind of where the talk about nasal intubation comes. As in, you're setting up for Craig, yeah. Well, and <laughs> but this, but that's another kind of big point to hold on to. Don't delay, Craig. If you're going to, it, you these are decision points where you get to. If you're going to have someone who has very significant angioedema, or if you notice like a, a significant Ludwig's angina type of thing happening, you're going to have to be okay with the idea of criking this patient, and you're going to have to be okay with it, like relatively shortly. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so this is where and we've talked previously about having, you know, preparing your stations and have everything set up. But this is one of those things where you're going to want to be set up, ready to go. Yeah. And if you're in if your airway intubation fails, then you're going to have to move on to crike. So you want to have that kind of set up right next to you. Yeah. I'm thinking about like mentally rehearsing this in my head as we're talking about it. And I'm thinking, okay, the crike kit is out. Uh, The crike kit is open. It's ready to use. Um, I've probably already taken my Sharpie and I've marked uh, the midline of the trachea where I'm going to do the uh, the puncture or my first incision, depending on what methodology or uh, your your program uses. Um, you know, if it's a nasal intubation, if that is a thing that you can do, um, I'm not I, I'm not somebody that totally discounts it. Um, but no, again, I, think, I, I haven't practiced it in years. Yeah. I think it's an option that's available, but I just don't think it's the, the preferred option. Like um, you're going to, you're going to have to get to the trachea at some point, yeah. but I mean, look, if you don't, and, and a lot of people think that, you know, dropping a nasal tube is, is easy and it's not, it's, it's difficult. There is a technique to it. Um, there are things that you should have. If you're doing nasal intubations, you should have like an endotrol tube or the, the, we coming? call it the, here it comes. Bam whistle trigger tube. <laughs> Look at bam, bam valve. Bam whistle is not a bad idea. And then, you know, for those of you that uninitiated, back in the old days, this was a uh, somebody got the idea, just put it over the airway connector, and it would whistle as you were getting yep. close to the trachea. These days, Dan's um, talking about the side of the ambulance. Actually, said ye old paramedics. Well, <laughs> anyway, uh, but now, what I honestly, what I would use now the if I had the option, the siren. <laughs> Here they come, Papa. <laughs> The black lung. <laughs> oh my god. Um, one of the things that I would use, I I used to have a bam whistle. I don't have them anymore. Um, I would use the end title. I would use the uh, attach the end title yeah. connector uh, to your capnography. Yep. I would use the capnography waveform to guide me into the trachea. I yeah, mean, and once and you see it you, actually pick up. Sure. Yeah, once I smart. see that waveform come up, then I know I'm there. Boom. Take a deep breath. Let them suck it in. There's little tricks to nasal intubation. Um, but I, I don't think we practice it enough. I don't think we teach it enough. For most of the people out there, I think it's going to not be a modality. Right. I'd and probably I, be better off with them criking. The I was person. just going to say, I think for the modern trained paramedic, crike is probably going to be the... Yeah, yeah that seems to be the next thing. 
All right, we are coming up on a hard out because Mike is going to turn into a pumpkin if we don't leave soon. So <laughs> Sorry, <baby>. this is <laughs> this is our airway review. Um, we want to know what you guys think, as always. Um, again, if you've seen or treated Ludwig's angina uh, or angioedema recently, let us know over on productions at gmail.com. Yeah, what we worked, also, what didn't work. Yeah, we're also on Twitter at Over on EMS and Over on Productions on Instagram and Facebook. Also, and Over on Productions on Snapchat. And we will also link into the show notes what this is based off of a review article from the New England Journal of Medicine that came out in November 2019. Very, very nice. new. Very, very new stuff. Thank you for listening. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Anna Ryan. And I'm Mike DiFilippo. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.